I will feast at the table of the Lord. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I won't hunger anymore. Welcome to the table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. We worship at Island Creek Elementary School, 7855 Morning View Lane, every Sunday at 10 a.m. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. Bless her, 
and she shall give rise to nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So last week we began a Lenten journey. Uh, this Lenten journey is these 40 days we walk with Jesus toward the cross and the empty tomb. And I invited you to do something with me on this journey. I invited you to be paying attention to and praying a very particular prayer, the Lord's Prayer. And to, to pray it not just in this space, but to pray it consistently and purposefully throughout Lent to add it into your rhythm of life outside of this space. So some of you might have other commitments that you've made during Lent. Maybe you've um, committed to give something up that tends to trip you up, or you've committed to add a new posture or a habit to your life that will ground you in knowing who God is. But in addition to that, I invite you to collectively pray this Lent. Pray. I invite you to pray this prayer that Jesus taught us to pray with new intention. And it's not a prayer that is new to us. It's not. It's something that we pray every single week at Kingstown, and it's, it's not just here. Churches all over the world in so many various languages right now. Have you ever thought about that? How many churches within this 24-hour period will pray this, and how many languages they will pray it? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And I know all of you, this is a significant part of the worship service. I know this because of the people who tell me when we don't do it. Um, you come up to me at some point after the service, those of you who come often and kind of know the rhythm here and say, worship was great today, but we forgot the Lord's Prayer again. Can't get anything past you people. And so... I'm glad you're paying attention like that. I'm glad you're paying attention to the order of worship when that happens. I'm glad you're paying attention to what's there and what's missing. This is actually what we're trying to teach our compromands currently what to do in service is to pay attention to what happens in service and what's missing and when we do something different than we did another week. But there are two different types of paying attention, right? There's the type of paying attention where you notice that a prayer is not in the service. And there's the type of paying attention, a different level of paying attention, when you begin to pay attention to what the words you are saying mean and how they relate to God's story, how they relate to your story. When Jesus said, pray like this, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When Jesus taught us this prayer, I don't think he intended for it to be a staple in every mainline Methodist church service in America. I don't think that's what he had in mind when he asked us to pray this prayer. I don't think he cared whether it was positioned right after the prayers of the people or right after the communion. I, I don't think he cared if it was included in some corporate liturgy. I don't think he ever had that in mind. When I read the Bible, when I, when I look, at, look through the whole Bible, I can't find one time where Jesus sat down with his worship leader to talk through whether we're going to sing the Lord's Prayer during Lent or whether we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer during Lent and whether we're going to do both of those and do we duplicate it and whether it replaces the prayer or in addition to prayer. I can't find one time that Jesus talks about any of that. He just said to pray it, just to pray it. And the more I read about Jesus, the more I know that most of the time when he prayed, he did so under sitting under a tree in solitude or leaning over a, a rock in anguish or on a mountaintop by himself, 
Thy kingdom come, forgive me, God, of my sin as I forgive others. And so this Lent, Jesus is inviting us to pay attention, to take up this practice of praying this prayer, this prayer that from the beginning to the end of the prayer tells the entire story of God's redemption for all mankind and tells the story of your redemption and my redemption, all in this prayer. And so whatever your Lenten disciplines are already, Jesus says today, pay attention and pray until maybe this prayer becomes more than just something you say, but something you live, right? So last week we began with the beginning, and we started at the beginning like you do. We started at the beginning of God's story of creation, and we prayed the beginning of this prayer, Our Father, Our Mother, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And we reflected on how God created us and breathed into our being, and then like a parent, God, our Father, wanted what was best for us hoping that we would trust in the one who created us, whose name is Hallowed, and whose way is Hallowed, and who knew what was best for us. And we have this way of needing to know all things, needing to know what's, what the end of this primary season is going to look like, needing to know what the result of this corona outbreak is going to look like. And it was God who said when, when we replace knowledge for trust, when we choose to know and to control over just trusting that sin enters our lives and all the siblings of sin and evil and, and collusion, the first line, our Father who art in heaven, every week we pray it. Every time we pray it, we drive to work and pray it, or we pray with our child by their bedside at night. You're saying, God, I know you desire what is best for me. And so I choose trust over control. So now this week, we are on the second line, thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want you to consider two scenarios today with me as we begin to reflect on this line. First, I want you to think back to when you were a blue, blooming, awkward adolescent, or think about that being now, <laughs> you are that. <laughs> and some friend of yours, that you know who maybe has a family that's much more religious than yours invites you to go to their church's youth group with them and you go and you actually like it it's it's interesting these people are cooler than you thought they would be they seem friendly they seem approachable maybe this is a new friend group you can have but there's this one person who you really connected with and you, can, you can't stop thinking about them you think they might like you too. And so now you're coming home from youth group in this like fog. You find yourself dreaming about them all the time, thinking about them all the time, about being with them, about dating them, about holding their pinky finger where no one can see between the pews, <laughs> sneaking off into a Sunday school classroom. Before long, you start dreaming about what it would be like to marry them it gives you this energy and like goosebumps when you think about it and this fullness and you can't wait to go back to youth group it gives you the butterflies but quickly it becomes clear that there is this other person at youth group who has similar feelings for the person of your affection and after a variety of unfortunate encounters 
and text messages and Snapchats, or in my days, dial-up instant message and origami-like notes. <laughs> the person you've been dreaming about chooses to hold pinkies with your friend instead. And there's pain, and there's misunderstanding, and there's grief, and there's embarrassment, and it seems like everyone kind of just knows your business now. Everybody knows this about you, and the group you were excited to be a part of seems to now be ghosting you. And it's keeping you awake at night in, like, in sweats. You remember what it was like to be an awkward adolescent? And you think to yourself, is this a Christian group? Like, we should have better ways of resolving this kind of stuff. We shouldn't be like any other group. But somehow, they don't. And in fact, it, it feels the exact opposite of that. And then goodwill becomes hypocrisy to you, and, and the kind words that they were speaking becomes like, like manipulation. And the next time someone says, well, we're just going to have to pray about it, you feel like you want to punch them in their mouth. And so think of that scenario for a second. Put it on hold. And then I want you to think of this one. <laughs> a lot I'm throwing at you right now. <laughs> Imagine that you're in your first apartment now. You're grown up. You're no longer awkward. Maybe you're still awkward. <laughs> and there's water dripping from the roof, and you don't want your neighbor upstairs to get in trouble, but you can't allow this to damage your house and your floors and your furniture, and so you call the landlord. And he says it will take five to seven business days before they can get out someone to check on it. Meanwhile, the water is still dripping into your apartment and you think it's completely unreasonable to wait for seven days for this. And you keep wondering, like, what's the, what's the Christian response here? Like, what's the Christian way to behave in this situation? Should I be a doormat and say, no, really, the precious rug I brought back from my trip abroad is better damp and moist. Or should I protest my rights and talk about justice and attorneys and compensation? So a conversation through your head that says, I, I want to be generous and I want, I want to be understanding and patient and I want to be forgiving. I want to be all the things that Christians are supposed to be, but I don't want to be stupid either and taken for a ride. I, I know that people can be worse off than me. I gotta understand that under a lot of pressure and, and financial trouble and have nowhere to turn, but I also know that people can be lazy and mean and thoughtless and selfish. And so we have these two situations. Situations like these scenarios, these two scenarios are microcosms of a larger question. A question we pray every week when we pray the Lord's Prayer. God, what does it look like to live thy kingdom now in the regular, nitty-gritty, mundane, relational, day-to-dayness of life? What is God's will? What does God's kingdom look like? For a church youth group fraught with emotional manipulation and, and clicks and shunning. And, and what is God's will? What does God's kingdom look like in an unfortunate situation of bad customer service and continued harm and a lack of viable options that you can control? What does it mean to be God's companions on earth, but at the same time to live in this world 
Must we live a double life? Inhabiting two worlds simultaneously? I don't think so. I don't think so. Instead, we live in one world. We inhabit this earth of all its hurtful and infuriating scenarios, and I could have gone on and given countless more examples. And we invite God's kingdom to come, God's will to be done in our very earthly scenarios and situations. And to do this, God invites us into two languages that we have to use in this weird in-between world. Those of you who I have married or have I've officiated your wedding, I think one person's here, you know these two languages because I've mentioned them to you. To exist between these worlds, between earth and the kingdom of heaven, is to learn the languages and to learn when to use them of contract and covenant. So here's the first language, contract. It's rooted in philosophers of like 300 years ago, like Thomas Hobbes and John Locke. This language imagines a time when human beings had no way of trusting one another, no way of making binding agreements with one another, no way of holding one another to any promises. In this condition, they, he called the state of nature. It's not a happy condition to be in. Everyone is at war with each other, and no one lives long in that state. So Hobbes says that an original, original agreement was entered into the situation by which everyone, once upon a time, gave up some of their individual rights to a sovereign in return for peace and security around them. This is called the social contract, he called it, about 300 years ago. This, it was named the social contract. So this, the state exists for Locke to protect people's rights and to arbitrate disputes between people. And this kind of thinking is at the heart of America's founding, at the at heart of our founding documents. This is there. And the fabric of our culture, it's there. It's so foundational to our lives that we scarcely even notice it happening every day around us. And this language is contract. The contract is a voluntary agreement between two free agents that creates an obligation that can be enforced. If a contract is broken, compensation can be expected then. And when you're sitting in your damp apartment with water dripping from the ceiling and you don't know what, what else to do and you call a wise friend and you need some advice, what does your friend say to you? Have you looked at the contract? What did your contract say? What does it say about maintenance in the contract? If you have a contract in normal circumstances, you shouldn't have to feel guilty about how you interact, about holding other people of the party to their bargain, to their side of the bargain. With, with a contract, you know where you are. Most contracts are built out of previous contracts. We're actually doing a lot of work of contracts right now at Kingstown. What will our insurance contract look like? What will our our, um, our, our personnel policy look like? And what do we do? We take these things and we go and look at what other people had, right? What other ones existed to form our own. While contracts are pretty dull to read, <laughs> they also evoke a kind of relief in us. And so much of our lives are based on these. It's reassuring to realize that someone's thought in advance about all the things that should go wrong and worked out a way of naming responsibilities and anticipating solutions. If you think about it, you, you really can begin to imagine almost all the complex parts of your life in terms of com contracts that you have. By contrast, though, when you're in a church youth group and you've 
You're heartbroken over a relationship that never came to be. Contract is useless to you. There's nothing a contract could give you that could come anywhere close to what you need or want in that situation. And that brings us to the other language that is older than contract. This language goes back much longer than the contract language, and that's the language we find in our reading this morning in Genesis. It's this language of covenant. Genesis is known for its covenants. Over and over again, covenant after covenant, a little earlier on from this passage, God makes a covenant with Noah that God will never again flood the earth. This is the foundation of the whole Old Testament. God will have to restore the shortcomings of creation by some other route than destruction. Henceforth, God is no longer in the construction business. God is only ever in the restoration business. This is the covenant of life that's created with us. And then in today's scripture, God makes a covenant with Abraham that says, through Abraham's line, through the people that came to be known as Israel, and we know them as the Jews, will all nations will find blessing. This is the covenant of the land. And then in Exodus, we meet Moses and makes a covenant of holiness with Moses that sets the bounds within which Israel must live and keep the land, and this is the covenant of the law. And then later in 1 Samuel, God makes a covenant with David to bless him and his descendants with kingly authority. This is the covenant of the lineage. And so it's life and, and land and law and lineage and all the parameters of the Old Testament are set by these covenants. The whole dynamic of the Old Testament story is that Israel has been called into the work of God's kingdom. Their mantra is, thy kingdom come, God. Thy will be done, God. And the core question weaved throughout all of this is, what does it mean then for God's will to be done? And what does God's kingdom look like then? And what, it, what does it look like to live in the midst of situations and scenarios of this earthly life while also working toward the kingdom to come? And so to exist between these two worlds, to be a part of the earth and its peoples and its problems and to be working to bring the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, we have to learn these two languages language of Hobbes and the language of Abraham. When we pray this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, and pray these words, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, we are asking these questions, what is thy will? What does your kingdom look like? And when do I speak in covenant and live in covenant, God? And, and when do I speak in contract, God? And when do I live in contract, God? Luckily for us, God gave us an answer. Jesus becomes that answer for us. Jesus is the answer to those questions. Jesus becomes for us the representative of Noah, and of Abraham, and of Moses, and of David, and the embodiment of Israel, with whom God makes a covenant that won't ever be broken. And Jesus is at the same time the God who won't ever break the covenant. Jesus is the Lamb of God who in his body suffers the pain of all the other broken covenants. But at the same time, Jesus is the shepherd who goes and fetches the lost sheep to bring them back into the fold, this unbreakable covenant. And so when we look at our lives, we find that the most precious things 
Just consider it for a second. The most precious things in our lives are not ruled by contract, but by covenant. Who will be holding your hand when you die? It's not someone you put into a contract. Who do you turn to when you're at a crossroads in your life and you've searched your soul and you don't know what to do next? Someone you know and trust in a way no, no contract could ever guarantee. And what gives you a sense of community and belonging and of being understood and at home a group of people and a place with whom to share a covenant like this. One of the differences between a contract and a covenant is that the signatories to a contract always have a third party to whom they can appeal, right? There's always a law court lurking in the shadows of every dispute. But parties to a covenant have no court of appeal there's no compensation for the breaking of a covenant. Because the covenant wasn't the means to some useful end. A covenant, be it between friends or family members or churches or neighbors, is an end in itself. Here's one thing, though. When we live between these two worlds, live this earthly life always trying to figure out what God's will is and what God's kingdom looks like, there is a place for contract. There is. And this is the mistake that Christians often make. We start by assuming a covenant, because we're trying to be that good Christian, and we don't take the time to care to get the contract right. We hire a friend as an employee, and it quickly turns out they're hopeless, they're a hopeless fit at their job, and their work habits fall well below the reasonable what our desires would be for them to keep the covenant, but the covenant inhibits us from facing the truth about breaking that, that contract. What we should have done was be more modest and set the contract out explicitly and hope and pray, but never assume that a healthy covenant would in time blossom out of that. It is important that we get the contract right and not rush the covenant. And if you look at your life, I wonder, if you look at your life and the most painful relationships of your life, the ones that have always been a problem for you, think of an in-law or, or a sibling or a parent even maybe, or a boss or a person you've, you're vainly trying to pretend that you're friends with, but you're actually not. Think of those people. I wonder if the confusion there between the two of you is in the language that you're using between contract and covenant. I wonder if that's what's led to your misery in that situation. You're going through the motions of relating to one another as if you're in a covenant, but the reality is you feel the other person is not ever keeping up the terms of the contract. And so I bet it's driving you crazy, right? That, it does. When that happens, it drives you crazy, and all the talk of being in a loving family or a Christian organization just becomes like smokescreen that makes a mockery of the covenant and leaves you finding it almost impossible to have a long overdue conversation with someone you need to straighten things out with. Perhaps you need to begin the practice today of praying the Lord's Prayer. Perhaps that's as simple as it needs to be right now. God, 
What is your will? What does your kingdom look like even here? Is this an earthly contract I need to sort out, or is this a heavenly covenant I can place my trust in? Here's the crucial point. We should always aspire for every relationship to be a covenant, but we should never let any relationship fall below the level of a contract. And the good news for Christians trying to speak with both languages and all of the frailties of life, this language of covenant and contract, the good news for us is our relationship with God is never, is never, will never be, can never be a contract. Even when we try to force it to be one, even when somebody stuffed theology down our throats when we were young that said it was, we never made a deal with God. God owes us nothing owes us nothing. We aren't God's equal. There's no court of arbitration we can go to if we get, get it into our head that God's not keeping up the divine side of the bargain. What we have with God is purely covenant, a covenant of grace that we did nothing to earn, nothing to deserve, and in the end, all contracts will fade away and our covenant will, with God will be all we and so we better be praying. Would you pray with me? God, we struggle as we walk through this life to know what is mundane and what's spiritual and what am I supposed to make sense of in light of who you are and what is just every day what is just earthly. We do that with politics. We wrap up the government of this world in who we think you are and therefore who we think they should be. We do that with friendships. Fully fully forgetting that this kingdom will fail whether or not we have the right person in office. And that that really unhealthy friendship will fail whether or not we treat them like a Christian, whether or not we let them walk all over us. And so, God, we pray this prayer today. We will in a few seconds. And we really want to internalize this, that your kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven is acknowledging that there are earthly things and there are heavenly things and that they're not always the same. And, and yet we are to be striving to build your kingdom here when this will not be, this will not ever look like your kingdom, not fully. So we're called to it, and yet we know that we're working at something that is imperfect. Whatever came to mind today, God, of the ways we have inserted contract in what should be covenant, in the ways we think of you and how you relate with us, or in the ways we are trying to work our way through relationships where we need to set better boundaries, we give that to you.
We offer to you the political divide. We offer to you the coronavirus. We offer to you our hearts and our prayers. We offer to you Mike McDaniel as he, as he will today remember his wife at the funeral this afternoon and try to gain some semblance of, of closure that we know is never closure. We offer you all the people in our lives who are grieving, who are hurting, who are ill, who need you and need your kingdom to come. And we pray today as you taught, taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Yeah. 